0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, author of The Empathy Edge, Maria Ross.
1: I think that there is that confusion of the cognitive and the, the emotional empathy Empathy is not just sitting around crying with your employees on the floor, right? That's not empathy. (laughs) But it's, you know, I can totally understand your point of view, and I know I have to make a really tough decision, and I don't really want to make this decision, but how can I make this as smooth of a decision for you as possible? Mm -hmm. That's where empathy can have a place.
0: How Maria Ross made a case for empathy as a business tool when the moral case wasn't working. There are lots of things that managers and executives do to improve their performance. They hire coaches or enroll in training programs or buy business books. All very helpful strategies, but strategies, to be clear, that cost money. Now, there is one key approach that isn't just effective, but totally free. It's called empathy. And yes, it's free. You can deploy empathy at no cost which is why our guest today, Maria Ross, is surprised when she encounters leaders who don't know how to act with empathy. Maria has spent much of her career crafting brand and marketing strategies for Silicon Valley startups and entertainment companies. She spent time as an executive at TLC and the Discovery Channel before starting her own consulting business. And throughout her career, she realized that the most effective leaders and companies were those that led with empathy which led Maria to write a book called The Empathy Edge. In it, she argues that compassion and empathy are key factors in what makes companies successful. But before she wrote the book, she realized that a lot of her clients were trying to figure out how to build empathetic brands.
1: Even my most left-brain, logical, technology company clients were starting to talk about the fact that they wanted their brands to be seen as empathetic. And my ears sort of perked up to that because that was normally something I had to convince executives of. And here they were saying, you know, this is how we want to be seen. And it led to the conversation of, well, are you actually that? Like, is that real? Is that genuine? Or is that just like a veneer you want to put on your business? If it is, your brand has to start from the inside out. And that requires you to actually be empathetic. If you want people to view your organization as empathetic, which means, the leaders within the organization, the culture within the organization, you can't just slap a coat of brand paint on your business. And in my career, I had seen examples of people being changed from the outside in, being transformed from the outside in. So maybe they were embracing empathy initially for, you know, good press. But ultimately I saw them transformed because once you embrace empathy, you can't go back.
0: Mm Uh Maria in in 2017 there was a book that came out by the eminent Yale psychologist Paul Bloom called Against Empathy which we'll talk about later on quite a provocative title mm-hmm. um Paul Bloom talked a lot about what he meant in that book but but basically he said that you know when people are over overly empathetic um it, it actually leads to to bad decision making and and bad outcomes your book is about cultivating empathy and, and, and making the argument that empathy is, offers a competitive edge. So before we dive into it, tell me why you started to think about writing this book. What was going on in your life, in the world, that, that you thought, you know, we need to really double down on empathy?
1: Yeah. It's, it, just side note, it's interesting you mentioned Paul's book because that was actually the first book I read as part of my, re- my three-year research mm. for this book. Um, and I feel like it was greatly misunderstood by a lot of people, but from a personal standpoint around the fall of 2016, my son was two and a half years old at the time. And here I am reading books to him about words are not for hurting and trying to instill these values of empathy and collaboration. And yet when I looked up in the newsfeed, there was, you know, leadership talking about the antithesis of empathy, talking about mm. xenophobia and and not accepting the other. And I lost heart. Like, what am I doing trying to teach this child about what's going to make him successful if the mm. only models he's going to see in the world are people that fly in the face of that teaching? You know, the moral argument to be more empathetic wasn't working for people. So I thought, okay, let's make it a business case then to say what's in it for you to <laughs> be empathetic. So my solution was to say I don't I don't think I have to stand for this. If I can just for the skeptics make a business case of saying, okay, forget the moral arguments. This will actually help you be more successful as a leader. This will lead hmm. to greater profitability, greater employee engagement, greater customer loyalty. You can't argue with that. And I was delighted to find the data and the research out there to prove it.
0: It's interesting because during the last uh, presidential administration there was a lot of talk about an absence of kindness an absence of empathy but what I thought was really interesting was you could make the argument that for example I think it's fair to say that that there wasn't a whole lot of kindness coming from the former president not a uh, an overtly kind person but um, but there was also the argument that there wasn't enough empathy shown towards people who supported him right because their their life circumstances or their needs or the feeling of being left out wasn't properly acknowledged so i'm curious about the idea of kindness and empathy are they interconnected can you have one without the other
1: so I think a lot of that stems from that slight misunderstanding of empathy. And, and in my research, you know, that was one of the first things I did was try to parse out the definitions, empathy, compassion, sympathy, kindness, being nice. And so if we really look at it at a pure standpoint, there's two aspects to empathy. There's cognitive empathy where I can imagine what it's like to be you. I actually take the time to see things from your point of view. But there's also emotional empathy, which is what most people get confused with, which is like, I have been through the exact same thing you've been through. And I've experienced those same emotions, but really emotional empathy is maybe I haven't been through exactly what you've been through, but I get where you're coming from because maybe in a different circumstance, I felt the same way, you know, frustrated, feeling a loss of control, feeling, you know, like you're not being heard, those sorts of things. And so I spend a lot of time educating leaders on the fact that empathy is not about agreeing with someone and it isn't just about being nice. You can you can be a really nice person and still not see things from someone else's point of view, right? It's about the perspective taking. And again, I don't have to walk away agreeing with you, and I think that's where people fight against empathy, you know, whether it's a a workplace debate or a political debate. They feel like if they talk to the person and give that person space to speak and be heard, they're condoning the viewpoint. Hmm. And that's not what empathy is. Empathy is giving that person's space to speak, trying to see things from their point of view, you don't have to walk away agreeing with them, but you can have a better appreciation for their context. And that sort of lowers the volume, right? It lowers the level of tension. It allows me to still see you as a human being. And maybe because we can still now keep talking, maybe we can find common ground. You know, I can understand your point of view. Maybe we can solve the problem in a different way that meets the needs of both of us. And so, you mm. know, that's often what I hear from leaders and I try to say, you know, you can't you can't build an empathetic culture by just hiring a bunch of really nice people because it's about a mindset. It's about information gathering, perspective taking, really being able to listen without judgment. So if
0: the definition of empathy is essentially, right, w- one definition is is seeing the world through somebody else's eyes, right? Yes. That's sort of the standard definition. But but really we're talking about gathering a multiplicity of perspectives, mm-hmm. and using that information to make bigger decisions, or to create an environment where people feel like they have a stake, like they are mm-hmm. stakeholders right. in in a in a decision, and and that is connected to to the kinds of things that 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 result in in retention, for example, and more productivity. Is that a fair kind of perspective on on on, on this?
1: Yeah, and I think where people struggle is well. I still have to ultimately make a decision in the end, right? So how do I please everybody? And that's, again, you know, that's not the definition of empathy. Empathy is not caving to everyone's demands. You can show empathy, for example, to a customer who's having a problem with your product or service, and you may not solve the problem exactly how they want it to be solved, but you can create an experience where they at least feel heard and you can try to find a solution to that. I, I remember you know, calling a, a customer support line once with a cable company, which isn't normally known for empathetic customer service. Uh-huh. And I will never forget, I was so angry when I called, right? It was, there was an issue with my bill. And I called and I remember the woman just took a second and said, oh my gosh, I would be totally mad if I saw mm-hmm. that on my bill too.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: totally understand how you feel. And that just sort of like, okay, she hears me right? And then she looked into the issue. She looked to see what she could do. And she was able to do something, not exactly what I wanted, but she was able to explain it to me. And I was able to receive that message because I had felt heard. Yeah, If people actually feel heard, and then when you make your decision, you communicate in a way that says, you know, look, I know that this is an ideal for everybody. I know that you're not getting what you want and you're not getting what you want, but here are the reasons why we're doing this. What do you guys think? And I think that's the difference between, you know, that that old model of dictatorship. And yes, does that take a little bit more time? It does. But then you retain your top talent. You don't get turnover. You don't get mad employees who then turn around and treat customers badly. So, you know, it's sort of what price are you willing to pay as a leader? And you are the leader. That's your job to spend that time.
0: Based on your research, who is doing this? Well, Who who is cultivating an an empathetic environment and culture mm-hmm. at their organizations.
1: I spoke to REI, the outdoor retailer, and I was talking to them about their whole opt outside campaign where they close on Black Friday. They give their employees the day off, they encourage their customers to get outside or spend time with friends and family. And that's a great example of something that was not created. The reason why they have that empathetic culture is not because They sat around in a boardroom and thought, how can we get attention? What can we do to make it seem like we're really caring, right? That actually bubbled up organically from an employee meeting where the employees were just being encouraged to share what the holidays meant to them. And so many of them shared that, you know, oh, the holidays have become so commercial. You know, we're working like dogs over the holidays. We can't spend time with our families. We can't get outside, which is our mission as an organization. And someone randomly popped up with, well, what if if we just took Black Friday off? What if we just closed on Black Friday? And everyone sort of laughed. And the person who said it said, well, we could never do that. And the leader in the meeting said, I don't know, could we? And so what it was was they embarked on this exploration of let's revisit our mission and think about things from our customers' point of view and think about things from our employees' point of view because nobody wants to work retail on Black Friday, right? It's miserable. Mm. So I remember speaking to Ben Steele, who's the head of customer experience at the time, and he said it actually wasn't a hard sell to the executive leadership, which to me says a lot about the empathy and the, the environment of the organization, that once they revisited their mission, which was to help people get outside and to appreciate the outdoors, it was kind of a no brainer that if they were going to be aligned with their values as an organization, this would be a good move. Yeah. So they were able to make a business decision that, that really impacted their, their bottom line positively. The idea of,
0: of like empathy seems to i think a lot of people hear it and they'll say well that's that's no brainer i mean i mean of course it's it's the right thing to do it's the moral thing to do there are some people who who might hear the word empathy and argue that in a you know in a in a free market system you know that's frivolous and unnecessary that you, you need to focus on p and l right just look at the numbers and the numbers will give you your answer um but you argue that there's data to support. Not I mean, not not only do you argue it, you show that there's data to support the idea of empathy in an empathetic environment to give an organization and a business a competitive advantage. What 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 kind of data? Can you can you talk us through some of that data?
1: Yeah. Number one is if we look at some research that Google ran, and this was actually years mm. ago, they did a project called Project Aristotle in 2017, where they wanted to dissect the makeup of the teams that produce their most inventive and profitable and productive products. You know, what did those teams look like? And their theory, which was always like a founding theory at Google, was that you had to be the top of your class at MIT computer scientist technologist in order to create innovation. Hmm. And they surprised themselves because what they found was that the makeup of those teams was not necessarily sort of the smartest kids in the class. <laughs> it was the, uh, and I hate to say B team, because what's a B team at Google? That's yeah. still like yeah. super smart, right? right but right. they found that their most, the teams with the highest propensities towards collaboration, communication, and empathy were the ones that delivered the most profitable and innovative products to market. And what I see behind that data is because. At the end of the day, it's people that create innovation and create products that lead to profitability, create experiences that lead to profitability. And if you have teams of people that can work well together because they understand each other and they can appreciate the talents and skills that each person brings to the table, they'll actually get stuff done. It's kind of the age old, you know, what, what kind of soil are you trying to grow the plant in? And if you create rich, fertile soil, if you create that environment for people to do their best work, they are going to deliver. And so to say that it's profitability or empathy is very short-sighted. It's empathy can lead to profitability because you are creating an environment where people can deliver for you.
0: You know, over the past, uh, let's say, year and a half, um, there have been a few examples of particularly tech companies that have made decisions to essentially ban conversations around politics in the workplace. Um, Coinbase did this, mm-hmm. Basecamp, another tech company, essentially said to, to, to employees, look, um, we want to avoid um, conflict and tension around politics, so there will be no more discussions in, you know, through work um, messaging systems or email systems or in the workplace around politics in both of those cases the leaders of those companies offered buyouts and severance packages to people who were not interested in re- staying with the company and 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 lots of people did and okay. in both cases leave those companies mm-hmm. and the leaders of those companies came under criticism but also praise from different observers mm-hmm. how would you i mean we don't obviously have all of the details about the decisions that were made and 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 um but let's let's just assume that the leaders of both of these companies are good people with the best intentions. Could you make an argument that despite what they were doing and and, and despite the policies that they were laying down, there was empathy in that decision or, 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 or was there an absence of empathy?
1: I think they thought they were being empathetic, but what they were really doing was operating out of fear and out of trying to huh. protect the status quo. And I say that because this wasn't a decision in isolation. One of the companies you mentioned actually did away with their diversity task force because they decided, well, diversity is everyone's job. So we don't need we don't need a separate task force that was mm. actually employee, it it was grassroots. It had started by employees wanting to create this task force. So it it's this idea of the workplace has changed. And it's even changed, you know, from Gen X to millennials to Gen Z. And What the rules were about what you talked about at work and what you didn't talk about at work have changed. And we can argue whether that's good or bad, but that's the expectation of top talent coming into the pipeline. And they won't tolerate workplaces where their voices can't be heard. You think about these generations growing up always having a voice with social media. Now you want them to produce for you and innovate for you in an environment where they feel like their voices can't be heard. And so, yes, is there a time and a place to talk about those issues? Of course, if it's taking away from work, if it's making pe- other people feel uncomfortable. But again, those decisions, you know that's the tip of the iceberg of what was going on in those companies. And there were people that wanted to do things to create a more inclusive environment, to talk about important issues. And it was completely squelched in the name of, we just need to focus on our work. But yeah. you know, we, we always need to remember that our employees are people. It's a Pollyanna viewpoint to think that they park their humanity at the door of the office. You know, they are bringing their whole self to work. They have, you know, families. They have things they're dealing with. If they're, you know, underrepresented populations, they're dealing with racism and bias and all of those things. They can't separate that from who they are as a person as they're performing work for you. And I think there's more Mm -hmm. of a recognition of that because that... It's not empathetic to make people pretend there's something they're not when they come to work. You know, it's in your best interest, I guess. I would say to those those leaders, to create an environment that's safe for people to talk about these issues. Instead of saying we can't talk about them at all, create an environment where people can be themselves, can vent, can talk about what's important to them, because that's ultimately going to help them focus more on work.
0: Yeah, you know it's it's really interesting because you're seeing in particularly in large companies like Google and Apple, large numbers of employees, particularly younger employees, demanding that their companies take a stand mm-hmm. on issues, which is so interesting. Um, it's new because traditionally corporations and big businesses and even small businesses didn't want to take positions on on issues. And that is proving to be quite complicated and complex for, for leaders. You know, for example, when it comes to really, really divisive issues like abortion or gun control or you know, the Israel-Palestine <laughs> – there's really – this is creating real challenges for, for businesses to figure out what to do if creating an empathetic culture environment is really engaging, listening – hearing people, and honoring what they, how they feel, how should organizations think about dealing with thornier political questions, particularly when their employees are demanding the companies take a stand?
1: I think when they get set adrift is when they haven't actually articulated and thought through their actual values as an organization. Mm. Because again, an organization is a collection of people, and people have values. And Many of the empathetic organizations I spoke to for the book, they talk about the fact that because they've gone through the process of truly articulating their values and not just articulating them so it's a pretty poster on the wall, but actually embedding that into the organization, they are able to be very clear up front when they're hiring about this is the tribe you're joining. Are you good with that? or not you know or not and i'm not saying you go through a laundry list of like political positions that your company holds when you're going through a hiring process but i think that those values can inform the stand you take
0: mm-hmm. when
1: times get tough and so again like kind of like rei so it becomes a no-brainer what well, we've said that this is our value of course this is the stand we're going to take on this and if you don't have that well articulated from leadership on down, where everyone has actually adopted it and understands it, that's where it gets difficult. And the companies you spoke about earlier that kind of put the kibosh on all conversation that was controversial, their, their values were very much profit driven, were very much about mm. like, we're about creating the products. That's what we're about. And that's fine. You know, Now that they've made this move, anyone that decides to work for them knows exactly what they're getting into. And if that's yeah. cool with them, great. If it's not, like you said, most – many people in their workforce took the package.
0: Yeah, but you, you would argue that in the long term, a company's sustainability and long-term success depends on, on creating an empathetic environment. Mm-hmm. That it's not – that if you're just focused on profitability and what the market dictates, mm-hmm. um, that may work in the short term. But, but you would argue that in the long term, that, that is not sustainable.
1: Exactly, because you have customers. And even just if you're looking at it from an external market point of view, if you don't understand your customers and what makes them tick, if you don't see the world through their eyes, you can't create products and services that they want or need. And so that's that's actually a marketing flaw (laughs) in your business model in terms of like you need to be empathetic. So that you you understand your customers. I mean, Steve Jobs, who was not necessarily known as the most empathetic boss, (laughs) um, when I spoke to people that worked directly with him for the book, they said he was actually rabidly empathetic for users. He Mm. would pour over user feedback and really tried to understand who they were as people and what their aspirations and their goals were. So he leveraged empathy to make Apple what Apple is today. Also, what's interesting about this conversation is, it's one I get into a lot, is that for some reason we are conflating certain political views or certain stances that companies might take with whether they are an empathetic company or not, Yeah. right? And so that's a value judgment. And so you can have a company that might be very empathetic to the people for whom they are relevant, and maybe it's not what you or I would sign up for. Do you know what I'm saying? but they are very clear in the market. And that's what that's what the last year or two have proven is that you've got to take a stand. It used to be that companies couldn't take a stand, but the incoming consumer generations and talent generations, millennials and Gen Z, are demanding that brands take a stand because people see mm-hmm. that these companies wield tremendous power and sway. And so there was a bunch of data that was published during the pandemic around the thoughts of Gen Z you know, they were talking to Gen Z about their brand perceptions of companies during the pandemic. 75% of them liked a brand more because of their response for employees and customers during the pandemic. Other statistics there that I don't have in front of me showed that they liked a brand less when they heard stories about how they fired employees over Zoom or how they, they took away benefits during the pandemic and decided not to shop or buy from those brands. Yeah, There's an expectation now that your consumers and your employees, they do need to know where you stand. You, you can't actually be Switzerland anymore. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***?
0: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today.
1: I remember for my own podcast, The Empathy Edge, I interviewed the chief marketing officer of Ethan Allen, who happens to be a Black male executive. And when the whole Black Lives Matter movement resurfaced, obviously after George Floyd, he went to speak to the CEO and, and he said, we need to take a stand about, about this. And because of the values of the organization, they didn't actually see it as a political stand. They saw it as a humane stand. They're like, this isn't about politics. You know, we're not saying one party is is racist and another party is not. They were saying, we're just making a statement that Black lives matter. And that's a human stand that aligns with our values as an organization. And might we lose some customers because of that? Maybe. And if you are okay with the fallout of taking that stand, great. You actually might gain customers. Yeah. But to say that we're not going to take a stand because we we want to pretend that, that our people and our customers don't have lives out of, outside of using our products or services is just naive.
0: Do you think – So to me, the concept of empathy is absolutely critical in in how I interview people, particularly on how I built this because it's a – it's a journey into somebody's personal story, mm-hmm. and it's a detailed deep intimate conversation and I know I know from the data we have that our audience is extremely diverse not not just racially ethnically generationally but politically too mm-hmm. um, I come across people who are huge fans of the show who are really conservative and people who are big fans of the show who are super progressive mm-hmm. but I Try to use empathy to to be inclusive for everyone who listens. You you mentioned this idea that businesses can't be Switzerland anymore; that they have to take a stand. But do you think that it will impact who consumes their products? You know, I mean, yeah. I I I don't want to just have progressive and liberal listeners because I think that what we the stories we're telling are, are valuable and useful for anyone. But at the same time. Is that the world we're we're, we're heading towards?
1: I, well, I think again that's conflating like political issues with mm-hmm. being in lockstep with hearing other voices. Those are those are two yeah. different things. And so yeah. again, if you go back to the va- you know really articulating the values of the organization, those values of the organization shouldn't be like we're conservative or we're progressive. <laughs> if if you value you know integrity and honesty and all people have a place then that's going to dictate the stand you take on different issues. We have to get away from the fact that that these issues are necessarily good or bad, you know, the judgments of good mm. or bad or, you know, kind or mean and just really look at okay, who as an organization do we want to be? What do we stand for? And when something comes up as explosive as the pandemic and treating employees and, and customers well and, and watching out for their safety or, you know, racial injustice. When those big issues come forth, that's the point where I'm saying you do have to kind of take a stand and say, here's our position on that. Even if it's mm. to explain this is not political, but this is where we stand on this. Those those two things are separate worlds. They're, it's apples to oranges. Mm.
0: How does a leader... Cultivate an empathetic environment. It it presumably has to start with her leadership or his leadership. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it has to start with you. And that's why, in the book, the very first habit or exercise, if you will, to strengthen your own empathy as a leader is to practice presence and to be able to really shut out the noise and make sure that you're in the moment so that you're not caught up in your own stuff. You're not caught up in your own head, in my opinions, in everything I have to do. I was at this meeting, now I've got to run to this meeting. You've gotta be present for people so you can read the cues. Mm -hmm. If you don't practice presence, you're going in guns blazing with your agenda, your opinions. That's the thing, Mm -hmm. when we don't practice presence, if we are going into a tense situation, a tense conversation with an employee or a colleague, we're bringing our baggage to it and that kills empathy ego kills empathy and so if you're too busy trying to defend your point of view whenever somebody tells you their point of view you're going to take offense right but to be able to be present and be calm and to listen and know that it's not a judgment on you and your opinion this person is just sharing their perspective you get a lot more of a productive conversation as a leader and I think that's something that I know I struggled with it with the first time I was managing teams in corporate mm. is like my own insecurities getting in a way, my own agenda and not leaving the door open to somebody can tell me they're not happy with something and it's not an indictment of my leadership skills. They're just telling me they're not happy about something or they're telling me they need something that the organization or that I as the leader are not providing. And so you can tell when someone's not being empathetic, when they get very defensive and fearful and angry, when they hear someone else's point of view.
0: Who is an empathetic leader that you have researched?
1: <laughs> well, there's, there's sort of a lot of unsung heroes that folks don't know about. Um, yeah. But I would like to point out who has really popped up in my radar, obviously, during the last year and a half, which is Eric Yuan from Zoom. Mm-hmm. I've been reading a lot about him and his leadership style and even spoken to employees at Zoom. And he started the company because of customer empathy. He started the company because the company where he was the lead engineer before for a video conferencing platform wasn't listening to the needs of the users enough. And they weren't letting him change the platform to accommodate the needs of users. So he went and started Zoom from the basis of empathy, from I wanna provide a way to connect that solves the problems that they have, that creates the experience that they want. And that's been the ethos he's built in the company. And so when the pandemic hit, I remember reaching out to my Zoom account rep because I had been a Zoom user for a long time before that. And I said, I'm just, I'm so, you know, thrilled to see what you guys are doing. They they immediately offered free K through 12 access so that kids could learn from home.
0: Yes. And
1: I said, what you guys are doing is amazing. And he said, you know, that's that's our CEO. He said, when the pandemic started, he said, we are not going to exploit this pandemic for profitability. We're going to use our skills and our talents to make people's lives better. That's a different viewpoint. Like, did they do really well during the pandemic, you know, financially? Yes. But it's a different viewpoint on why we're doing this. And I think that's that really gets to empathetic leadership of, of not only walking your talk as a leader, building a company based on empathy, but then communicating that to your employees is here's what we're about and here's what we're not about. That's a very different message than what another leader may have said, which was, this is gonna be awesome. Everybody needs to video conference. Let's let's sell the hell out of this, this solution, right? To people. Mm. That was not the stance that they took.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also think of Mark Cuban and the Dallas Mavericks. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't lay anybody off during the pandemic. And as a result, you know, they retained the loyalty of their employees. And many big companies who did layoffs, like airlines, for example, Mm -hmm. are struggling to find to get those employees to come back.
1: Right, right. And there's another company, which the name is escaping me right now, but they had to do layoffs. They just had to. But what yeah. they did was they published a directory of all of their workers that they had to mm. lay off.
0: I think it was Airbnb.
1: Yes, it was Airbnb. Yes, exactly. And they, um, and they promoted it to anyone who was hiring and said, these are quality people. You should hire them immediately. And, and that, that is empathetic. So they had to make a tough decision. This is what I mean about they're, they're not mutually exclusive, right? They had to make a tough decision. They did it with empathy. They did it with this idea of what do these folks need? And what can we do to support them? Because this is what they must be feeling right now. That is a way to handle that gracefully and with empathy versus, you know, firing people on a 10-minute Zoom call.
0: Yeah. So so let's let's talk about Zoom calls, right? Because your book came out before the pandemic, before hybrid work, before remote work, mm-hmm. or whatever that's the world we're entering into. In this new hybrid you know, future of work, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly when when our interactions are through video, let's just be frank, it's hard. It's harder to create an an empathetic environment, right?
1: It is. But you know, what's interesting is that the pandemic laid bare the organizations that were relying on surface things to create a good culture. Mm. So for example, if you were relying on the foosball table and free lunch in your office to keep people happy... That went away during the pandemic if your workforce was working from home. And so what is culture, right? It's it's how you get work done. It's the values of the organization. It's how people treat one another. It's how they treat their customers and their suppliers and their partners. That's what makes a culture. And so I think a lot of organizations have used the excuse of, well, our culture's fallen apart because everybody's on Zoom. Yeah. Other organizations have still continued to thrive and found ways to keep connecting keep having fun together, keep making it about not just the work, but understanding where people are. And the unique opportunity that the pandemic gave us is that the wall between work and personal life was shattered, right? We're yes. taking Zoom calls in our bedrooms and in our, our kitchens. With our
0: cats and our kids running our behind kids us. our kids are running and... around
1: and our dogs are running around. Like, yeah. like the facade is gone. <laughs> if you, If you did work yeah. for an organization where they made you be one person at work and another person at home- that was shattered. And so yeah. as you were able to be your whole self, because you had to be, you were able to see maybe the cracks and the flaws in your company's culture. Brand experts like me, culture experts have said for a long time, it starts from the inside out. It's not about the veneer. It has to be about what you truly value and how that shows up every day and how you run a meeting and how you relate to people. You know, you know, Do you start your Zoom meetings by jumping into work immediately? Or do you give people a second to level set? How was your weekend? What are you going through? Oh, I had a great weekend. We, we went camping. Oh, I had a horrible weekend. We were potty training my kid, right? <laughs> or I had to deal with my, you know, we had to put my, my mother into assisted living. It's really hard for me right now. <clears throat> now you have context for people when you're able to understand what they're going through personally and how that colors their performance at work. And so I think the Zoom issue was used by an excuse by some organizations to mask the flaws and the cracks. Other organizations thought, okay, well, our culture is this. How do we translate that to a virtual environment? How do we still have fun? How do we have like happy hour on Fridays? Or how do we, you know, water cooler time? Or, you know, I know companies that were doing, you know, cooking classes together or wine tasting together on Zoom. And Again, that might seem kind of surface, but if you were able to adapt, it was because you had built the culture around those values and around those connections with people. And that's ultimately what really matters to your culture because innovation doesn't get done if people can't have strong relationships with each other, regardless of the environment, whether it's in person or virtual
0: there there's a quote in your book which I love. It's Stephen Covey says, "Empathy takes time and efficiency is for things not people." And I think that's very true. That that to create an empathetic environment, you've got to put in the time. It's not efficient, it's not easy. Sometimes it can distract from even productivity, but it's sort of like a long-term investment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, does it slow you down temporarily? Yes, but it accelerates you for the long term because now you've built this loyalty, you've built this trust, you've built this environment that when it's tested, and that's really the test of it, right? It's easy to be empathetic when it's easy. It's easy to be empathetic when everybody gets along. It's easy to be empathetic when everybody looks like you. It's easy to be empathetic when the company's facing good times. But Mm -hmm. the the true empathy of a leader has to be tested. I believe one of the other leaders I interviewed for the book, who was former CIO, Dave Belay, said that, you know, it's in the tough times that empathy and leadership is tested. Yeah. And so you want to build up that, I guess you'd call it empathy equity (laughs) during the good times so that it's a firm foundation when you need to call on it.
0: So one of the big questions Maria tackles in her book, in addition to leading with empathy, is how to build an empathetic brand.
1: Being an empathetic brand means being in lockstep with your customers, listening to them, seeking their feedback, even if it's something you might not want to hear, and accepting that feedback as a gift, not as a pain in the neck, right? That's something that you can't put a veneer on. And that's You know, what I work with my clients on is is it's one thing to want to say that you're something, but how are you actually walking that talk? How are you living that out? You can't just solve your brand problem with marketing. It's gotta be everyone's job. It's gotta be part of the culture and the leadership and coming from within, because then that's the genuine brand that will emerge for customers. But I think from a from a tactical point of view, speaking your customers' language. So we see a lot of marketing copy or sales copy that seems like it's not trying to connect with an actual human being it sounds like everybody else in our space it sounds like it's meant to just appease analysts in our space or media but not our customer and so that requires you to be constantly communicating with your customers how are they defining the problem they have how are they defining the benefits that they seek how do they describe what your organization does You know, I don't care what your boilerplate says. Well, how do do your audiences, how does your customer define it? And echoing that back in your communications to customers, because we've all gotten that email or seen that ad where it's almost like it's the voice in our head. Right, and we're like, oh my gosh, that company totally gets me. I, I get that a lot, you know, marketed to as a mom of a seven-year-old. Sometimes it's like, oh, that company totally gets my life right now and <laughs> what I'm going through. Yeah, and yeah. that's a result of of empathetically listening and seeking input from your customers, so you can speak their language.
0: Hmm. We earlier I mentioned this book by Paul Bloom that came out a few years ago called mm-hmm. Against Empathy. And and essentially he argues that there's an overemphasis on empathy and that ultimately being overly empathetic leads to bad decision-making, bad outcomes for a greater number of people. Um, Do you think your book is a counterargument to what he writes or do you think that, that there's actually alignment in what he's saying and what you're saying?
1: I think there's a both and. Um, And like I said earlier, I think his book was a little bit misunderstood by certain very vocal critics of it. And he even says this in the book. He's not saying that people shouldn't be compassionate to each other, right? (laughs) He's saying that there are certain situations where if we let the emotional empathy blind us to what actually needs to get done, that can be problematic. And I say this as someone who almost died from a brain aneurysm that had to have emergency surgery where my brain aneurysm ruptured causing a hemorrhage and I was taken to the hospital. My neurosurgeon was extremely empathetic, but in that moment of having to save my life, he couldn't be distracted by, oh my gosh, she's a wife, she's a daughter. Um, This is terrible. Like I know exactly how their family's feeling. He needed to focus on what he needed to do to save my life. Mm. But his interactions with me were empathetic. When I was awake and I had to go back for my checkups and all that kind of stuff, you know, it was about listening. It was about explaining. So he was an empathetic person. But if you only look at empathy as the emotional empathy, if you only look at it as I'm going to feel exactly how you feel, and that's actually going to paralyze me because you might be in crisis, right? I can't be in crisis because I have to be the person that's making the decisions or that's where empathy can be problematic. So I think that there is that confusion of, of the cognitive and the the emotional empathy. Empathy is not just sitting around crying with your employees on the floor, right? That's not empathy. <laughs> but it's, you know, I can totally understand your point of view and I know I have to make a really tough decision and I don't really want to make this decision, but how can I make this as smooth of a decision for you as possible? Mm-hmm. That's where empathy can have a place. That's the point he's making is that there's certain situations where the emotional empathy can blind us to what we need to accomplish or what we need to get done. And that can be dangerous in certain situations like brain surgery.
0: When it comes to an empathetic brand, for example, I mean, is there – what what comes to mind when you think of a, a brand that, that is empathetic?
1: Well, I definitely think of Zoom, as mm-hmm, I mentioned. Yeah. Um I think of you know some of the brands I use as a mom <laughs> who, again, really understand me, Carter's, Plum Organics. Mm-hmm. Lego is extremely empathetic. again, because yeah. it's not for them, it's not about selling product. it's about fulfilling a need. And you can't fulfill a need unless you understand what people's needs are. When you're able to connect with someone on that level, that gives your company purpose. And yes, you want to make money, (laughs) but you also, people don't feel like the only reason you care about them is to make money. You're still selling to a human being. And the reality is that most human beings make decisions based on emotion and logic. Mm. And we try to think we're very logical creatures, but we're not always logical creatures. And oftentimes we use logic to justify the emotion we already feel about making a certain purchase decision. Will this solve a problem for me? Will this make my life or my work better? What does buying this product say about me? What tribe or community am I joining when I buy this product? The brands that understand that it is also an emotional decision are the ones that win.
0: When you talk about cultures that practice empathy or cultures where empathy is not practiced but want to intentionally implement that kind of culture, your recommendation is start small.
1: Absolutely. You can't boil the ocean (laughs) when you're embarking on this. And that just means, you know, find where the friction points are, you know, and this requires you to have conversations. It requires you to ask your employees what's working, what's not. And I should add, creating an environment where they can actually be candid, Mm. Right. It's one thing to, especially if you're in an environment that's not necessarily an empathetic culture, it's going to be very jarring for people if all of a sudden the CEO sits down with like a manager level person and says, Tell me how you feel about the company. Yeah. <laughs> They're not really going to be candid. They're not going to be honest. Yeah. So that's why you really have to start small and solicit that feedback and try to remove friction points. Maybe it's about how you run meetings. Maybe it's about, Office policies, for example. You know, there's one study that showed that employees actually see things like flex time and remote work and paid family leave as empathetic perks. They actually Mm -hmm. view them as empathetic. Yeah. So are there things that you could be doing in the organization that show like, hey, we hear you and we understand your life and what you bring to work, and we're just going to make these changes? Um, I spoke to Belinda Parmer in the book, who is an empathy expert out of the UK, and they work with clients. And one thing that they did to start small was just change titles. They changed the name of the head office to support hub in a Hmm. financial services institution. And that changed the relationship of the field offices to that support hub because it was no longer a hierarchy. It was that that main office was there to support them. You change one name and that can actually change the whole relationship. So you can take a look at titles in the organization or names of functions within the organization and see if anything's rubbing people the wrong way. And those are really small things that can make a big difference.
0: The idea of baking empathy into a business from the start to me is a no brainer. And and if you are a small startup, right, and, and that is part of your core value system that empathy is baked into everything you do. It's part of your mission. How do you think about hiring people? What what are the questions you ask people when you're considering who to bring on to your team?
1: You have to look for emotional intelligence and it has to be intentional. Again, it can't just be, well, I'm just going to hire really nice people that I get along with, but really looking for emotional intelligence and empathy in the interview process. So go beyond the resume And ask for examples of, when did you help a colleague? Tell me about an extraordinary customer service experience that you provided. Tell me how you dealt with a colleague who had a different opinion about a strategy than you did. You know, those are questions that are beyond just the skill sets on my resume. But those are the things we need to be digging into versus just, oh, I just got a really good vibe from this person. And we had a really good conversation over coffee or on Zoom. It's really digging into that and trying to find out how they have been tested in tough situations and what their reaction has been to disagreement or to conflict. And, you know, that's a red flag if they're like, well, I never had a disagreement with a colleague. (laughs) Is that because you're conflict avoidant? You know, that's not necessarily good for empathy either, right? So it's really getting into asking the questions that get to emotional intelligence. And I spoke to one leader for the book who was actually the director of compassion for a financial wealth company, if you can believe it. Hmm. And they said that part of their interview process to hire for emotional intelligence and for empathy is to actually give real-time feedback in the interview and see how the person responds. So, if I'm interviewing you guy and I say, you know, well, I've noticed so far you're 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 talking a lot about you're talking a lot about yourself. You're not really asking questions about the organization. Can you tell me about why that is? Hmm. And you, you know, you might be taken aback by that, but your your response to that is going to tell me a lot about your level of emotional intelligence and empathy. If you respond with curiosity, if you respond with, oh, that wasn't my intent, please tell me why you got that impression, then that's a very different reaction of someone who is in control of their emotions and able to see things from another person's point of view, than the person who gets very defensive and says, "Well, I wasn't doing that, and this is what I was doing, and I thought this was what this interview was about," because the person that's curious and asking questions actually wants to understand why you have that feedback for them. That's empathy.
0: Do you think we're heading towards a more empathetic world and environment? I mean, there are so many reasons to to, to doubt it, but I, I I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, what, what what's your sense?
1: So I think the answer to that question is, I hope so. (laughs) And the interesting thing is, I think you can find your flavor of a research study that will tell you we are more empathetic or we're less empathetic, Mm -hmm. because I've seen both. And my optimistic sense of that is that the fact that we're talking more about empathy as a society, as workplace leaders, gives me hope that this is an expectation. The fact that we are... Highlighting, shining a light on the models of people who are successful and empathetic and breaking the old paradigm that you don't have to choose. Empathy and competitiveness are not mutually exclusive. Ambition Hmm. and kindness are not mutually exclusive, which was the whole goal of my book. The more we can shine a light on those models and hold them up and say, this is how it can be done, the more I think we give people another way to look at success in their lives. I do take hope in terms of the data out there around Gen Z and millennials who are bringing up these issues, who are more active in their communities, who are more in tune with, are we being inclusive of everybody's point of view and everybody's experience more so than you know any other generation? Hmm. And so I tend to drift towards the studies that show that that these generations are more empathetic though it has to be said, I think we are more vocally divisive than Mm -hmm. we've ever been. And I think it's just because of the transparency of information. So my goal is to amplify the voices talking about empathy. And hopefully that drowns out the people that don't believe that compassion and collaboration and inclusiveness are the way to advance our workplaces and our culture.
0: That's Maria Ross, founder of the consulting firm Red Slice and author of the book The Empathy Edge. And that scary moment where Maria had an aneurysm? She's also written about that in a memoir called Rebooting My Brain. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Ross, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.